Hello and welcome to this latest University of Brighton podcast. I'm Edwin Gilson and my guest this week is Dr Rachel White of the School of Pharmacy and Biomolecular Sciences. Dr White talks about the connection between young people and the natural world, her research into everything from parrots to rhinos, the merits of rewilding and the university's involvement in the Nature 2020 campaign. But she started by discussing her childhood love of nature and wildlife. Well, it might seem a little bit cliched, but um, I've always been passionate about the outdoors and nature and the environment. And that's largely because of my, my parents. So I grew up, my childhood years and all of my teenage years were spent in Crowborough in East Sussex. And every weekend we would go out somewhere for a walk in the countryside, go and have a picnic in nature, um, visiting places like the Ashdown Forest or Cookmere Haven. Um, All of our holidays were in the UK as well. So we were visiting places in England, Wales, Scotland. Um, So although my parents didn't actually or don't have any jobs kind of related to ecology or the environment or conservation, I just had a lot of exposure um, growing up um, with nature. I remember quite vividly when I was probably about four or five, receiving my first pair of binoculars as a birthday present. Um, They were from the early learning centre. They were bright red in colour. So (laughs) completely conspicuous and I have no idea what the magnification was, but I absolutely loved them Um, and I would bring them with me everywhere. Um, And I also remember um, at school, um, so at primary school, we had one um, parent who actually set up a bird club. And so we would, uh, well, I would go to that every week. Um, I was definitely probably the most precocious and proactive member (laughs) of this bird club. Uh, We would learn about the various birds in our local space. We would learn how to make bird feeders and how to carry out bird surveys. And that was, you know, at primary school. So having that exposure um, as a child, um, kind of having that exposure to somebody really inspirational and passionate about nature, I think was definitely pivotal for me. My grandparents gave me my first bird book when I was really, really young. It was secondhand. It was way too big to take out into the field, but I absolutely loved poring over the images and the drawings. Um, I could spend hours looking at it. Um, and I was a member of the, the YOC, which is the Young Ornithologist Club as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got my little pin badge with the Kestrel on it. Um, it no longer exists. It's now called the Wildlife Explorers. Um, so it's, it's good to see that they're still continuing on in a different form. So, But this was all, I think... Um, because of that exposure that my parents gave me on a regular basis, this quantity and also quality nature experiences that I had um, as, a, as a child. OK, and we might mm-hmm. talk about some of those favourite spots then a bit later when we discuss your, your favourite place in Sussex. Absolutely. Uh, so you didn't have any, I don't imagine you had an inkling of that in that early point that you might want to have a career in conservation and ecology or were you not really thinking in a careeristic term at that point? (laughs) No, I think I always knew and I think my parents always knew that I would end up in one way or another um, with a a nature-related career. But actually, right up until the point um, of applying for university, um, I was thinking about becoming a vet. So I actually started applying for some veterinary um, degrees. Um, However... And I actually spent quite a lot of time doing all the relevant kind of work experience, volunteering um, and internships at veterinary veterinary practices. And I just started to get this realisation that perhaps that wasn't the career path for me. Um, I mean, I had 
crazy visions in my head that I'd become a wildlife vet traveling to all these exotic locations but realistically I thought that probably wasn't going to happen that was quite a niche position to have and so I started to get this realization that perhaps being a vet wasn't the career path for me um perhaps a bit too indoorsy um a bit repetitive perhaps in some of the um, um practices that you had to do and so I actually did a did a 180 <laughs> um and uh stumbled across do a degree course in zoology and uh, I told my parents I was a little bit apprehensive as to what they were going to say I mean a veterinary science that was quite a defined career path with a clear job at the end um so when I said that I wanted to do zoology instead um I was a bit worried but they were actually really really supportive and they read the the kind of brief as to what zoology was all about and they said yeah that's that's the degree for you Rachel and that's what I ended up doing um at Durham University and I really really loved it and I particularly enjoyed um, not necessarily excelled at but I particularly enjoyed the ecology and conservation modules which were um, exposed to us in in the third year in particular and I thought, well, I want, I really, really want to know more about this particular aspect of zoology. Um, so that's when I did a master's in conservation science. And I did that um, at Imperial. Um, incredibly intensive, but exposed to so many kind of passionate um, and inspiring academics. Every week you'd get a different topic and different lecturers. And I knew um, that this excited me. And I knew that I wanted to carry on down this career path. And that was supplemented by various volunteering and internships that I did with the RSPB, for example, and uh, JNCC, which is the Joint Nature Conservation Committee. So I was doing an internship there um, in their overseas territories department, the UK overseas territories, um, which once again just opened up a whole other world of biodiversity that I didn't realise that the UK had ownership of until I did that internship. Mm. Um, and I mean, after the Masters, I once again knew that I wanted to carry on in research. I That curiosity, that um, drive to, to, to answer questions and to have um, an application uh, with respect to conservation was, was really key for me to continue doing. And that's yeah. when I ended up doing a PhD. Um, yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, why, why did you want to go into conservation in an academic realm rather than all manner of other conservation and ecology jobs there might be? Why was it academia specifically for you? Yeah, that's it's a good question. I mean, I I think a key point to make here is that um, I'm not an academic that kind of keeps myself locked away in my office doing research, which is only read by other academics. Um, I work a lot with practitioners as well, um, which is fundamental if you're conducting research in conservation. Um, why I particularly went down this career path um, of academia it's a little bit serendipitous. I've been quite lucky in the sense that I haven't had any kind of career breaks. It can be quite hard within conservation to um, have that continuity. Um, quite often you're forced to um, to kind of, uh, I don't know, volunteer for quite a bit or kind of try to take entry-level positions, um, which perhaps don't pay that much, if anything at all. Um, but I think I've just been at the right place at the right time so far. And um, I mean, I took a year out actually after my master's um, to actually do, to build up my kind of experience and confidence in, in conservation. That's when I was working with the RSPB and, and JNCC. Okay. 
but I think there's that kind of curiosity side of me that fits well with academia mm. where I knew I'd get called back to kind of or pulled back um, mm. to the academic environment and that's when I I um, started to read up and reach out to academics that inspired me that I thought potentially I could if I was lucky end up doing a PhD with and uh. that's I reached out to Dr. Peter Bennett, who works at University of Kent, the Durrell Institute for Conservation and Ecology, um, called DICE for short. And I reached out to him and I said I was really interested in his research, his large scale research on, on bird diversity and extinction dynamics. And would there be any possibility that we could um, apply for a PhD? And I wasn't necessarily expecting a reply, let alone a positive one, but I did. Mm. And that's when we developed this this um, this PhD, which I ultimately ultimately ended up doing. Ah, which was that was... a nervous wait then when you wait for them to reply? And it know. all happened really quickly. Okay. <laughs> it right. all happened, and once again, I had many friends where that had a very very different experience. But I was, I assume, an element of luck, um, a bit of tenacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and um, I, I think the passion and the interest and the curiosity came across, I think. So, okay. um, yeah. And then you returned to Sussex to come back to the University of Brighton then. What what, what uh, was the instigator behind that move? Well, uh, so I finished my PhD. Um, I graduated uh, 2014. Um, actually, after my PhD, which was completely desk-based, so my PhD mm. was looking at um, the biogeography of avian traits and extinction risk with respect to altitudinal gradients. Okay. So actually my PhD, it was quite desk-based. It ended up in the end. That's often how PhDs can change from one thing at the beginning to something completely different at the end. Mm. I learned a lot and a lot of the skills that I developed um, during my PhD um, I've taken forward to, to today. Um, but... Uh, after my PhD, I knew I wanted to do something. Um, I needed to get out, basically, of the office environment. Mm. So I reached out to um, one of my my mentors, um, Professor Zoe Davies, who also works at the University of Kent. And I said, um, is there any field work that you have that I could potentially do? Because I, I've got a bit of cabin fever at the moment. Mm. I need to go and do some field work. Yeah. And uh, she said, oh, we've got this project um, which is working, um, which is which is based on Ascension Island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's one of the UK overseas territories. So that's, that's some of the experience I had prior on overseas territories was feeding in here. Okay. And um, she said, I need somebody to go out there for a month to, to do some field work. Um, mapping invasive plant species distributions something completely different to my PhD but I jumped at the chance and Mm. I'm really glad that I did Um, I mean anyway to cut a long story short I ended up doing that and pretty much just just prior to going out I had the confirmation that um, I got the job at Brighton so (laughs) so I'd been applying in the background for postdocs and lectureships and I saw the position at the University of Brighton for a, a permanent um, kind of lecturer in ecology or conservation. And I thought, I've got to apply for this, um, knowing the southeast really, really well. Um, so I applied for it. And I felt the interview went really well. Um, but once again, kind of having come just straight from my PhD, I didn't necessarily have the high expectations that mm. I would get accepted, but I did. Um, and so I, I jumped at the chance when they said, yes, we'd, we'd like to have you working here at Brighton. So I started back in 2014. So literally, um, pretty much as I got off the plane from Ascension Island, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> RAF Bryce Norton, because wow. you have to take fly with the RAF to get to the Ascent, to get to Ascension Island. Right. So I got back from Ascension Island and pretty much started my job here at the University wow. of Brighton. Wow, whirlwind time. 
time. It really, yeah. really Do you remember it quite vividly now then? Quite intense time. Very vividly. Mm. Um, it didn't it didn't actually feel intense. Once again, it just seemed to be this natural steps. I don't know, it just seemed to flow and it just seemed to make sense and one thing finished and the next thing started for okay. me. Sure. But yeah. Well we'll talk a bit more about your teaching here later. Yes. Um but a lot of your work is obviously based around in a very basic way, trying to connect people with the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, a link which some argue is is weaker than ever before. Um, firstly, do you believe it's more important than ever to connect or reconnect humans with the natural world, uh, given the climate emergency, obviously, and, and subsequent environmental breakdown? I think it's, it's fundamental. I think um, increasingly, particularly in the Western world, and, and unfortunately, particularly younger people, there's this increasing disconnect with the natural world. Um, it's sometimes called um, the extinction of experience. So um, children, a lot of teenagers are growing up without that exposure, without those quality um, frequent um, experiences with, with nature. And there are a variety of reasons as to why this phenomenon Um, is occurring. Um, Two of the most commonly cited ones are the fact that in the Western world, we're becoming an increasingly urban society. Mm. Um, So there's an argument that there's less opportunity to connect with nature. Although I tend to counter argue that, um, especially living here in a city in Brighton, there are green spaces that you can get to and you can connect with. I mean, we're quite lucky here in Brighton. You can literally walk up onto the South Downs yeah. um, in a few minutes from, from the outskirts. Um, so I think that there are opportunities, even in towns and cities, to connect with nature. But it, I appreciate that it is more difficult to. Mm. You have to have your eyes opened and um, be exposed to that. So there's, there's, that's one potential reason, a strong reason, actually, for this disconnect with nature. Um, The other one is the fact that collectively, not everybody, but collectively as a society, um, we're we're more sedentary Mm -hmm. and we're very technology focused. So we have a lot of distractions that distract us from these quality, frequent connections with nature. Um, Mobile phones. I mean, how many times, you know, you just look around in the room on the train, Mm. people even walking to work and they're looking at their mobile phones rather than around them. Mm. Um, So mobile phones, um, computer games, the Internet. um, We're overwhelmed with with information. Mm. Um, And once again, I do like to flip that around and make a counter argument that sometimes technology can actually help us connect with nature Mm -hmm. so for example there are on mobile phones and tablets there are devices which you can download many for free which can help you connect with nature so my Mm. first year ecology and conservation students I've been asking them to download an app called iNaturalist there's another one called Seek by iNaturalist and they are apps which help you um, to identify and record the wildlife species that are that are around you so Seek's really clever it uses um, augmented reality to help identify species in real time that Mm. you're seeing so there are some apps out there some technology can actually bring you out into nature I mean, even sure. things like Pokemon Go, yeah. in a sense, it kind of got people out. I mean, yes, they were probably still <laughs> looking at their devices, but just getting them outside in some fresh air. Yeah, so that's true. There's those two two aspects, this um, lack of opportunity and this lack of orientation, which are believed by many scientists studying this phenomenon to lead to this disconnect um, with nature. But okay. um, yeah. 
So you offered a few counter arguments there to the more negative side of the There's argument. There's always a counter argument. Well, you can always good. flip a negative into a positive. Yeah. Yes, that's a good thing because that's <laughs> yeah. what I was going to ask about next, really. I mean, mm. um, from the outside, you might assume it's a, it's a slightly dispiriting time to be working in ecology and conservation. But you have yes. done some work in, um, in this phrase called conservation optimism, <laughs> haven't you? Uh, has this kind of field blossomed as a reaction against the overload of negative news stories about the environment that you can see just by glancing at Twitter every day? Yeah, so so conservation optimism, it's um, a phrase which I think first came uh, or first started to be used quite widely back in 2017. So I went to um, a global conservation conference. It was actually in Cartagena in, um, in Colombia. Fantastic opportunity to go there. Incredible biodiversity. Mm. And one of the keynote plenary speakers was... Um, one of my kind of inspirational scientists, um, Professor E.J. Milner-Gulland. Uh, she's now currently based at Oxford University. And she gave um, a keynote, which was basically kind of setting or planting the seeds for, for this movement called conservation optimism. Um, and essentially, this conservation optimism movement has grown into this really quite large uh, global community. Um, it's dedicated to sharing optimistic stories about conservation, um, to try and inspire, to educate, to entertain and also to empower people around the world to try and make a positive impact um, for wildlife and the environment. Um, so typically um, the media and even scientists, we actually... Um, like to not like to but we do or the media like to um, emphasize the the negative mm. um, environmental situation um, so a, a majority of um, conservation biodiversity environmental related news stories are negative in how they spin things um, so there's a lot of what we call doom and gloom um, media reporting about the environment and Yes, we are currently facing um, a biodiversity and, and climate catastrophe. That's the vast majority of conservation scientists would wholeheartedly agree with that. Mm. But there is an increasing amount of research which suggests that um, presenting or overwhelming people with negative doom and gloom stories on a daily basis can actually lead to um, a disconnect um, and people feeling a sense of hopelessness. I mean, eco-anxiety is a term which is being used increasingly, especially with the um, uh, growing and recent kind of Extinction Rebellion mm. um, protests. Um, it's making a lot of people, especially young people, feel quite hopeless and anxious mm. um, and feeling that there's nothing that they can do, whereas conservation optimism is not trying to brush the issues under the carpet, but it's basically saying, look, there is a lot of positive um, conservation stories out there, a lot of um, inspirational conservation um, practitioners, not just scientists, most of them are actually on the ground, they're practitioners, mm. um, doing a lot of good work and that we should be learning from these positive case studies and trying to spread them as far as possible. Mm. Um, so there's also an ocean optimism movement and an earth optimism movement and they all kind of link um, link together. Okay. So it's trying to not scaremonger mm. but actually trying to um trying to um highlight and showcase these positive case studies and trying to spread them as far as possible so and mm. it's more about trying to report conservation in a constructive way so rather than leaving say a new sto story about a conservation issue in a negative light it's saying okay this is the current situation 
Um, and but this is what we can do collectively to get ourselves out of it. And um, this whole conservation optimism movement um, also um, has got this catchphrase or this hashtag called I am a conservationist, which is basically trying to um, what's well, basically saying that everybody, every individual, not just conservation scientists or practitioners, but every individual can be and, and should be a conservationist doing their own individual bits to to help the environment of course so, yeah. i mean talking about that psychological reaction as well um i've seen a few articles recently which have argued that climate scientists or anyone involved in conservation and ecology basically uh shouldn't feel the need to be objective necessarily in their <laughs> research and teaching um i wonder what you, you felt about that i mean given the many extinction risks faced by wildlife today should should scientists be allowed to respond in a more personal subjective way in their work do you think this is actually something that um, I discuss with um, with my students. Okay. Um, so, I mean, typically what I say is that disciplines such as ecology, so I, I teach ecology and also conservation, but disciplines like ecology, I think they need to be objective as a scientific discipline. I mean, ecology is all about kind of characterising the patterns in nature, studying the interactions among organisms and their environment and trying to understand the mechanisms um, involved in biodiversity. So ecology is quite a complicated um, uh, science. Mm. <laughs> I tell my students that, um, which I think makes it all the more fascinating. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it does need to be objective, I think, ecology. Whereas conservation biology or conservation science, um, which is inherently multi and interdisciplinary, um, but it's also it's a it's a crisis discipline. It's a reactionary, or sometimes a reactionary disciplinary discipline, um, and it's also it is also a value laden science. It is you know humans are the problem, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they are also the solution. Mm. Um, so it's it's always going to have conservation biology and conservation science, and I wouldn't say necessarily it's not. It will have an element of subjectivity, um, and it has people's values are a central part of it mm. humans are part of the equation of conservation the moment you don't listen to people's views on the ground or everybody in terms of decision makers and stakeholders views the conservation project's not going to work so you need to it integrates natural sciences and social sciences conservation science uh, mm. as long along with many other disciplines as well so Ecology, I would say, objective. Conservation okay. science, it's more value-laden and subjective. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And, yeah. and do the students kind of enjoy that, taking part in those discussions then about they do. objectivity and subjectivity? They, they, yes, they do. They, <laughs> I think at the beginning, they struggle a little bit because they, I think they think that there has to be a right and the wrong answer. Mm. Very often, it's not that clear cut in conservation. It, it's shades of grey. Um, I mean, in terms of if you have a, a particular conservation scenario, like, I don't know, the establishment of a new protected area or the expansion of a new protected area, different stakeholders are going to have different opinions and whose opinion values more than another. So mm. I think it's it's that mindset, which I think students initially they struggle with, but actually they um, they pick it up very quickly. The fact that you actually need to be inclusive when it comes to conservation and you have to um collectively weigh up the pros and cons of any given conservation scenario but there are always going to be um some people that aren't necessarily happy or mm. benefiting from a given conservation outcome you mentioned some of the research you've done earlier 
Uh, and very recently, you've been involved in published research into parrots and rhinos, to name two <laughs> yeah, species. Yeah, quite different. Yeah, yeah kind of off the end of the spectrum. <laughs> yep. I mean, generally, uh, I appreciate there isn't like a blueprint for this probably, but how do you go about deciding which species to investigate in your academic work? And I know there's a lot of collaboration in that as well. But um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I thrive most um, when my research is collaborative, working as part of a team. And I think now, particularly in conservation science, um, you don't get the lone researcher anymore it's very much collaborative it's very much moving towards um if not already in some cases interdisciplinary big networks of um of researchers which is really exciting another reason why i particularly love love this particular um career path um in terms of so the the parrot aspect of the research that i've been involved with i mean i should say that the vast majority of my research relates or involves birds in one way or another okay. they've always been my kind of soft spot mm -hmm. so if anybody says oh what's your particular kind of specialist group of species i would say birds right um just because of my prior childhood exposure which has carried on with me mm. um so that the parrot aspect of, of research started actually when i was doing um, my phd um at, at kent and um people working in my lab had just set up this um, EU cost action called ParrotNet, um, which is all about trying to understand the biology, the ecology and the conservation implications of non-native parrot species across Europe. Okay. So this project had just started. I was just finishing my PhD, had this long-term interest in birds. And so I, I asked if there was any way that I could get involved. And they absolutely, they said. Um, so I've been working on that project. It's now formally come to an end, mm. the funding, but the network is still there. And so my particular role within within ParrotNet was trying to collate all the evidence for uh, non-native parrot species in UK having um, impacts in terms of environmental impacts, but also socioeconomic impacts. So trying to collate all the evidence to see where we're currently at, mm -hmm. where the knowledge gaps are, and trying to kind of weigh whether the current pros or the current cons outweigh the pros at the moment. So, right. yeah, it was a big task. Yeah, <laughs> it's just recently a... got published this year. So yes, that's it's a true. Long time coming. That's quite interesting. You mentioned the socioeconomic yes. impacts as well as environmental ramifications then do you often have to kind of tie those two things together in your in your research um uh, yes once again in conservation if you want this if you want a holistic kind of um overview of what's going on yes absolutely and with invasive species um it, it's not just about their impacts on biodiversity or the environment it's also about the economic and social impacts that they can have. So, for example, um, non-native parrots, they have been shown, for example, in, in the US, particularly monk parakeets, they can have quite a noticeable uh, impact on infrastructure. They can cause, um, they like to build their nests on telegraph wires and uh, like to chew through cables, so they can cause power cuts and all sorts of infrastructural damage, um, which actually does add up <laughs> in terms mm. of economic costs. Um, in the UK, we're not really seeing those infrastructural impacts, but in terms of social impacts, some people, it's a bit like Marmite, some people mm. love them, some yeah. people absolutely hate them. I think if I lived right next to a roost, um, I probably <laughs> would <laughs> not be getting much sleep. They're incredibly noisy. Yeah. Um, they poo a lot as well. Right. Um, so it's trying to collate this evidence um, and trying to understand the cost benefits. Um, 
uh, impacts of these species. So when I say impact, I don't just mean negative impacts, but also positive impacts as well. Mm. Um, you know, some people really enjoy walking through, for example, um, Hyde Park and seeing this flash of green and these mm. parakeets. There are people that feed parakeets on a regular basis in in London. It's a it is an exotic bird, and um, you know, on a rainy, gloomy day, yeah, <laughs> you can yeah. imagine actually seeing seeing a parakeet might put a smile on some people's face. Yeah, so that's where, also where the subjectivity comes into conservation yes. again. You know, everyone's going to have their own different opinion about different species. And what about? I mean, you, you mentioned kind of green spaces earlier, whether that's out in nature or whether it's in in cities as well. Um, I wonder about your verdict on on kind of rewilding, which is this term that's come into the popular consciousness yeah. a lot recently. It's even been on the Archers and Radio Four. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can rewilding work as a means of capturing carbon or do you think humans will always be tempted to to mediate nature and kind of tamper with it in some way or can you have both things or should we just leave can we leave nature alone I suppose is the question oh my goodness uh, once again this is you know if I was if I was asking that question to my students I, um, they would pretty quickly realize it's not black and white it, yes. it's very much case specific area specific time specific um the particular conservation action or inaction that's needed um rewilding that's it's it's of growing importance and relevance it's going to be a, a term a conservation method which is going to stick with us for many many years into the future and I think quite rightly so there is a quite a long an ongoing debate as to actually how we define rewilding mm. um, in terms of the scale in terms of you know which base are we trying to restore to a previous condition or are we trying to um, we create or trying to create a novel environment but I mean in its essence what rewilding is it's it's um restoration of natural ecological order and processes that's what rewilding really is mm. um I mean you can discuss the semantics as what do you as much as you want but that's really what rewilding is um and actually of, of interest I think on Monday so next Monday um the parliament are meant to be debating rewilding as a tool for trying to mitigate climate breakdown. Okay. So that will be really interesting if it goes ahead to see how that discussion pans out. Um, but I'm a strong proponent of rewilding. Um, I've got a PhD student who's literally just started, okay. who's looking into rewilding, trying to integrate the social and ecological um, connotations and aspects of rewilding. Mm. Um, so I think that'd be a really, really interesting area of research. Um, but it's it's controversial, I think, once again, because there is this lot of misunderstanding or misconceptions regarding what rewilding is. Um, I mean, quite often, well, not everybody's heard of rewilding in terms of the general public. Mm. Many that have, they think about, you know, reintroduction of the wolf yeah. into the UK. Yeah. And uh, many people for, you know, for for well-intentioned reasons are not particularly happy about that but that's majority of people studying rewilding don't envisage no. you know the UK running wild with wolves and bears and lynx again mm. um, you know we are uh, predominantly agricultural and heavily urbanized and heavily populated country we do not have the space um, to have um, significant populations of those um, those carnivores anymore mm. um, Instead, rewilding is going to look a bit different and is looking a bit different in the UK. So the NEP estate, which is quite close to um, Brighton, is doing things a bit differently. Okay. And it has, um, it used to be quite an intensive farm agricultural landscape, but they've actually taken a step back um, when they've put ponies and pigs um, and cattle 
as the kind of the main kind of grazers and mega herbivores. But other than that, they're kind of really taking a step back. And actually, if you go from the non-Nepestate agricultural landscape surrounding NEP into NEP, it just seems like a completely different world. Yeah, the right. environment is very, very different. Um, yeah. And the biodiversity... Is, is, is much greater as well. Okay. Um, but I'm a strong proponent that rewilding can happen anywhere, including mm. in urban in urban centres. So I think everybody should try and rewild their garden yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. My garden is definitely a good example <laughs> of that. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe a bit too wild. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody can do their own bit for rewilding. And I know Brighton as a city is trying to find spots green spaces which um can be rewilded as well mm-hmm. i think hollingbury um golf course is actually a potential yeah. site for for a rewilding project yeah um i'm also i think i'm one of the um band of people that thinks that rewilding nature can also go hand in hand with rewilding people the idea of reconnecting people with nature goes quite well with rewilding as well yeah um so i've got a project that I'm currently developing with Chris Sandham, who's at Sussex University, who's a rewilding expert, where we are um, proposing a project whereby young people um, get the opportunity to visit existing um, wild spaces around Sussex and then get to visit sites that have been proposed for rewilding. And um, basically in liaison and collaboration with the landowners, create um, a vision for what this newly rewilded landscape is going to look like and have okay. a say at actually trying to turn this into a reality. So I, and once at, at the same time, trying to connect these um, disengaged um, younger people with, with nature as well. So I think yes. that kind of links up quite nicely with some of my other yeah. areas of interest. And links up very nicely with what I was going to ask next as well. <laughs> does it? It does, <laughs> which is um, about the conference you oh, yeah. co-organised recently. Based around uh, that link between children and young people and, and nature, um, and in which Caroline Lucas gave a keynote speech, I believe. She did. She did. Um, I imagine the takeaways were many, but what do you think the key ones were, in your view? Um, so, yeah, so the, the Young Nature UK um, conference, so that was back in June, and we had over 120 delegates, which was fantastic. And what we really wanted to do so Deborah Harvey was also co-organising this event she's based at Royal Holloway and also does a lot of research on activities interventions to help connect younger people with nature so what we really wanted out of this event was for it to be inclusive and for it to be as interdisciplinary as possible and I think we were quite successful at that we had various um, people of different ages but also different backgrounds so we had ecologists and conservation scientists we also had social scientists practitioners artists, um, school children, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, politicians, uh, medical practitioners. So it was a really exciting um, collation of, of people. And mm. I think the event really benefited from that. Um, I think in terms of the key um, kind of learning points and outcomes from this event was that there's already a lot of excellent initiatives that are being employed across the country. Um, to connect young people with nature for various benefits. So for educational benefits, but also for conservation benefits and also health and well-being benefits, particularly mental health Mm. um, benefits. Um, So that was really encouraging to see. And we had discussions about how can we replicate these kind of best practice activities and how can we expand and scale up some of these activities. Um, We discussed the 
importance and sometimes neglect of evaluating the impact of these interventions as well. So it's one thing to get the money to set up and implement these projects, but actually trying to assess their mm. their impact is really, really important. Trying to do that long term is difficult, but yeah. necessary. Um, so... And we also, there were a number of new collaborations established, which is really exciting nice. to see as yeah. well. Um, and that rewilding project that I was just talking about came from oh, right. that event as good. well. So yeah, that yeah. was really good too. Um, so it was just a really good two-day opportunity to bring together people all passionate about the same um, topic, the same um, course, and to collaborate, bounce ideas off of each other, and to... Be critical in terms of where our knowledge gaps are, mm. but actually also to celebrate the successes that we're having too. And okay. I think um, getting that many people together in the same place really emphasises that this is an important area to be working in. Yeah. Well, you so. talked about people from different sectors and professions yes. getting involved, but I also wonder if there's a growing awareness of people within academia from different uh, departments even um, focusing on, on the climate crisis, because we've even had someone on this series before, uh, Dr. Matt Adams, who's focusing on um, on climate change and reconnecting with nature from a psychological point of view. So um, do you think there is a growing awareness that the, that the climate emergency, I suppose, is going to spread through the through the departments and it's not just going to be in, in ecology and conservation? Yes, I hope. Yes, it, I was going to say I hope so, but it, it actually is. And, and Matt Adams is actually the other supervisor for this rewilding PhD oh, right. student I mentioned. So, um, But initially, I think when I started at the University of Brighton for the first, I would say, three years, I've been here five years now, I wasn't very proactive in communicating with other people from other schools. But when I reached out to the School of Social Science, that's when I found out about Matt. And that's when I found out that they were actually teaching eco-psychology over there. And I had no idea. Mm. Um, and I found out about, um, you know, various research cores um, that are focusing on um, climate change, but from a more of a social science perspective as well. Yeah. Um, and I think actually doing this um, Young Nature UK symposium where we had a number of people from the University of Brighton coming or at least kind of um, wanting wanting to come and then following up afterwards. Um, so this um, topic of biodiversity decline, about disconnect from nature, about climate change breakdown, it very much so spans more than just the ecology and conservation yeah. um, group within PABS. Um, I mean, we have, obviously, we have um, researchers in SET, School of Environment and Technology, um, uh, doing excellent research um, relating to this and um, the school of social science the psychologists um, we have um, connections with um, you know, the school of education we have um, medical school as well there are all of these kind of major environmental research areas and issues definitely tap into each and every school here in the university and I still mm. think it's a bit of a, not necessarily, a, well, it is a bit of a plea. I think there's a need for us to be better at communicating with each other and trying to um, collaborate. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for interdisciplinary collaboration within this theme mm. across the different schools. Um, but I would say that probably be, probably within each school, there are individuals working within this area. Okay. Some which I know about, some which I don't. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the yeah. more the more that's embedded into the into the syllabus, the the better, I suppose. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And you're on the um, steering group for Nature Twenty Twenty. Um, could you explain a little bit more about that campaign? So I'm really excited about this. So Nature Twenty Twenty is essentially a year long celebration of nature within the Brighton and Lewis Downs um, biosphere, so the Living Coast biosphere. 
um, and uh, we're currently at the moment, so it's going to start officially um, the 1st of January and run all the way through to the end of 2020. And uh, we're currently accepting um, applications for proposed activities and events um, that can run during this year. Um, so it can be absolutely anything at all um, that helps um, nature or helps connect people with nature. It could be, um, you know, a nighttime bat walk. It could be um, your own kind of uh, little rewilding project in a, in a local green space. Um, it could be um, a, a, an environmental movie screening night, something like that. So we're currently accepting applications for the first quarter, so up until the end of March. Um, as part of that, the University of Brighton, in collaboration with um, Sussex University, we are going to be running um, the City Nature Challenge, which is going to be in the end of April. So City Nature Challenge is actually, it's a global initiative. Um, it's basically a, a bio blitz. So it's within a certain um, time period, so it's several days. Um, the whole city tries to record as much wildlife as possible um, within the actual the boundaries of the biosphere. So we're going to try and get as many people involved in that. But um, yeah, the University of Brighton and Sussex University are leading the way on, on that. And there'll be more news about how people can get involved in the City Nature Challenge um, in the new year. Great. And we'll put a link to Nature 2020 in the podcast description as well. Moving on to your teaching at the university, which you've discussed uh, a little bit already. Um, I know you were a strong advocate of field work in higher education. You're out in the field earlier this week, in mm. fact. Um, is that something you've implemented into your teaching? Uh, is that something that was already existed or is it something that you've tried to, to put into motion? So actually, I was really lucky. Um, so when I started at the University of Brighton, they already had a fantastic suite of um, field trips and field courses in place for um, our ecology and conservation science students, biological sciences. And also um, we have students from SET, from the environmental sciences and earth and ocean sciences doing these field trips as well. Um, so we have in each year, first, second and third, and also our master's um, and MRES courses, we have field trip opportunities. Um, majority of them are actually relatively local, UK based, and I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. I think um, there's a big debate at the moment about um, the cost benefit ratio of overseas international field trips. Mm. Um, I... I can see both perspectives because there's value in in students being exposed to a completely new environment. It's very inspiring. I mean, myself as a undergraduate student had the opportunity to go on a field trip to South Africa. Pretty much the same field trip that our current students, second year students, get the opportunity to go to go on. And I know that that was one of the reasons why I decided to really kind of steer my focus towards conservation. It was one of those pivotal moments mm. where I thought. This is this is a fantastic environment. Um, this is really inspiring. The wildlife is fantastic. A number of conservation issues, which there are conservation champions working on. Um, it was a very, very exciting opportunity for me. Mm. And um, so I can see that side in terms of the pros of international field work. But like I said, there's a bit of a backlash recently with obviously the carbon footprint yeah. of such field trips as well. So I think you have to be careful. It's a weird um, balance though, isn't it? Yeah, it, you, you, it can give you, a, like you said, an awakening of the, of the beauty yeah. of the natural world by going to different spots. But then you have to be aware of the... Yeah. Of the cost, I guess that's one of the many grey areas that you discussed there. It yeah. is, but in the first year, for our first year ecology and conservation um, students, we take them and we have just come back from uh, just a, a long weekend field trip um, at FSC Preston Monford, where, um, you know, it's very, very close. It's only about a four hour train journey. 
and it was not only an opportunity to expose them to some um, fundamental ecological survey techniques um, to get them up to speed with some basic species identification, but it was also really important an um, opportunity to bond them as a cohort and for us as lecturers to get to know them better and mm. to help them feel more um, um, at home, to make them realise that they have um, lecturers that they can reach out to mm. uh, and to feel stronger as a, as a cohort that they can support each other, a support network, basically. Um, and yes, obviously, we didn't have any white rhino or giraffe <laughs> or opportunities to potentially see a leopard. Mm. But um, the students were really, really excited about what they were discovering. Um, and the species list, we make them we asked them to keep a species list. Okay. We had over 100 species that they were compiling. Right. And that in itself, these local field trips, we shouldn't underestimate the value of them either because mm. they are really, really important. And, you know, being in a biosphere reserve, um, the University of Brighton, we have so many opportunities for local field trips too. So I think it's it's important to get the balance. I think there should be more um, emphasis on local UK-based field trips. Mm. But I think the occasional opportunity for an international field trip, I think it would be a shame to get rid of those completely. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, going back to the classroom then, um, I think you've said that you like to mix it up a bit with your teaching, so incorporating interactive methods, uh, including <laughs> um, kind of games and quizzes, if I'm right in saying. What, yes. what, what are the techniques exactly? <laughs> well, I think, I think anyone's going to feel bored listening to a lecturer drone on for two hours. Mm -hmm. The lecturer is also going to lose a bit of interest as well. So it's really, really important, and all of the members of staff in the, the ecology and conservation team do this, is to make their sessions interactive. Mm. So normally at the beginning, particularly for my conservation modules, I'll have a, you know, what's in the news at the moment, so getting okay. students to think about what's um, currently in the news regarding conservation issues or conservation breakthroughs or ecological um, research. So trying to um, make it relevant and, and hot, um, so to speak. Um, we Yes, I often kind of throw in questions and, and, and quizzes. I mean, it's it does what it says on the tin, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's yeah. um, often, I think at the beginning of any module, it can be a little bit awkward. Yeah, You can get those awkward silences. But I think once students realise that it's okay to make a mistake, and there's, there's no such thing really as a silly answer, then they mm. start to um, get into it. Um, so quizzes are really important. Um, flipped learning as well. So perhaps giving them a video to watch in advance or a paper to read, and then they come and discuss it. So more active learning rather than just passive Mm. passive learning is really important as well videos i quite often slip a bit of david attenborough into my okay lecture. yeah easy win yeah. yeah easy win exactly <laughs> um i think what it really is i think what i try to do with my lectures is, is mix it up a bit okay um, so variety so videos flip learning um quizzes debates conservation is a fantastic subject for having debates mm. you know the value of zoos for example or um, the pros and cons of, of wildlife corridors, it sets itself up really well for debating and gets students to think, especially if they're put in the group kind of that goes against what their their side of the argument would be or their mm. side of the debate would be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's all about variety. That's what I try to do. <laughs> yes. And do you have, I mean, you talked earlier about uh, your whole PhD ended up being quite desk-based. It did, yeah. Um, do you have students, do you think, that, that kind of have different skills? So some of them come into their own in the field and others are quite content to kind of get their head down and do the research in the classroom. There must be a bit of a mix. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, not every, not every ecologist or conservation scientist um, 
particularly enjoys going getting out and getting muddy and getting, getting their hands dirty. <laughs> yeah. Many do, the majority, vast majority do. But that's why in our final year, when the students get to do their final year project, um, we offer them the opportunity to do either a field-based project or a desk-based project. So it could be a review or a meta-analysis or analysing um, an existing data set. Um, so we recognise the fact that not every student wants to necessarily do field work mm. um, and uh, so we try and cater for the interests and the, the expertise of our students and um, well, I think one key thing that I would say about projects especially kind of conservation related projects is that I always try to match up my students with um, external organisations I think it's students get a lot more out of projects which actually have a purpose mm. or an application rather than just maybe collecting data and it's just going to sit in the filing cabinet and never be looked at again. So yeah. they can actually be um, fed back to an organisation if it is actually of value, even if it's a pilot study for something. I mm. think that gives the students a real sense of um, um, kind of, it's very gratifying to kind of feel that your your results are actually being used and have made yeah. a difference in some way. So, and that's with visit yeah. the RSPB and a few other organisations. Yeah, yeah, so I have some contacts within the RSPB and um, the South Downs National Park Authority mm-hmm. um GWCT, the Game and Wildfowl Conservation Trust, um, and also uh, WWT, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. A lot of acronyms there, I (laughs) apologise. So I have quite a few local kind of contacts, which, um, so if a student comes to me and says they're particularly interested in um, a project on on wetland birds, on wildfowl, I know who I can potentially get in contact with to see what projects are available. A student says they want to do urban bird projects, then I have plenty of ideas, but I can hook them up with people from the RSPB because the South East office is in Brighton anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so and, and the students really um, appreciate that. Um, so I, I utilise the contacts that I've, I've built up over the years mm. to um, help students doing their undergraduate and their postgraduate projects as well. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, how do you feel about moving on to some lifestyle questions? <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> let's yeah. go for it. You might have, yeah, this first one you may have, um, actually the second one, sorry. So the first one is what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self who at that time, if I'm writing calling, was not even set on a career in ecology and conservation at that point. So Yeah, yeah I was going to be a vet. Yeah. That, was, yeah. <laughs> that was my plan. Here you go. Um, I think my advice would be to be less harsh on myself and to be less scared of committing to things or kind of less scared of of failing Mm. I think at that time nobody had really my parents probably had but I probably ignored it because I was a teenager nobody really (laughs) kind of properly told me why it's okay to fail okay and so I think now being an academic (laughs) you have to get used to Mm. failing Um, or not necessarily failing but you have to get used to that sense of rejection okay um and to not take it personally so for example if you get a paper rejected on the first time round or a grant rejected or you don't um you're unsuccessful at an interview for a job Mm. it doesn't mean that you're a bad person at all or or that you've actually failed um you have to pick yourself up and and try again and um, I think as a as a 16 year old self, I was kind of my own worst critic, very much a perfectionist. I still okay. kind of am. So I still this advice is still kind of relevant yeah. to me sometimes. But I think, um, yes, kind of saying yes more back then okay. um, would definitely be um, some advice I would give myself, not being so scared. OK. Yeah. Um, Favourite place in Sussex? You mentioned a few already. 
Yes, I mean, it's really hard to, to pin it down to a single place. But if I had to, um, I would say the Ashdown Forest. It was right on my doorstep as a child growing up. And mm. my parents still live in the same house in Crowborough, actually. So nice. um, it's very, very easy to get to the Ashdown Forest. I've recently moved to Uckfield okay. once again. Ashdown Forest is really close by. So I absolutely love it. It's um, a beautiful area of heathland and woodland and um, Old Lodge in particular on the Ashdown Forest is somewhere which I'm very, very would happily spend hours um, just uh, just kind of chilling, having a okay. picnic, uh, watching birds, um, just watching the world go by. Really, really love it there. Sounds very idyllic. It's and that beautiful, might yeah. link into your perfect weekend. Yes, my perfect weekend. Um, definitely would include a bit of a lion. Okay, yeah, first things first. <laughs> bit of a lion, yeah. followed by, yeah, probably a, a nice long walk in the countryside. Okay. I am I love, I do love the autumn and winter even when it's dry, like a mm. dry, cold, crisp autumn's day. You can't beat that. So a nice long walk. Um, there would be a Sunday roast involved, that's for sure. Um, and uh, it would just be spent with family, mm-hmm. my parents, my sister would come over. Um, so just quite chilled, but there'd definitely be an outdoor element. I, yeah. I'm one of those people that really likes going for a walk all day. Yes, okay. <laughs> Maybe, you know, a pub lunch to intermit or a picnic, but I uh, would quite happily walk all day. Um, Until dark. Love it. Yeah. Until dark, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Really, really love it, yeah. Great. <laughs> and what are you currently reading, watching or listening to? So you can pick one of those, all of them, if you want. Yeah, so in terms of, I'm being really bad at the moment. I'm not reading a great deal unless mm. it's a scientific paper or a yeah. textbook. I'm currently preparing some new lectures as well. Okay. Okay. Um, writing some papers myself. But um, I did recently um, read The Joy of Science by Snyder and Schneider. So I know that's not really a switching off type of book. It's still related yeah. to my work. But it was a really interesting read. It's quite a short book, but it kind of guides you through these seven principles for enjoying your research. So it's all kind of tips for finding harmony and happiness and success in the research that you do, mm-hmm. um, which is a really nice book. And I'm wanting to buy the new um uh, part two, The Book of Dust by Philip Pullman. Oh, yeah. I really love his books. I'm yeah. waiting to get that. That will that will be a book that I will read, which isn't related to work. And yes. I will enjoy that. Maybe over Christmas when you get a break. Or yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, TV. So to, in terms of light entertainment at the mo- moment, I am heavily engrossed in The Great British Bake Off. Okay. <laughs> and also Strictly. Right. Nice. <laughs> so I am, I am watching those. Um, but I, I like to binge watch Netflix um, TV series. I'm currently finishing off Orange is the New Black, which I've okay. really enjoyed. But I want to watch... Um, I've been told that Peaky Blinders is really good and Black Mirror. So they're next on my list. Um, in terms of music, uh, well, I, quite an eclectic <laughs> taste in music. I think it's influenced by both my mum and my dad. So um, my mum loves David Bowie, um, loves the Beatles. Um, so I always listen to to them and also my dad it was more kind of Led Zeppelin classic rock deep purple (laughs) electric light orchestra so that that's kind of I definitely listen to to a lot of kind of 70s rock but anything I can dance to so even if it's cheesy modern pop um I I used to dance quite a lot um go to dance classes and so anything I can dance to I also would enjoy so very eclectic it depends on the mood really Hmm. as to what I what I end up listening to of course yeah (laughs) 
And lastly, yep. then, uh, which three people would you like to invite to your fantasy dinner party? And they can be alive or dead or fictional, in, in, if you want to go that way. But Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is probably actually a question that I kind of struggled with the most, yeah. overthinking it. People tend to say that. Yeah, actually. exactly. So I think if, um, depending on the day, I'd probably answer differently. Mm. I felt that I, I, I have to... Oh, no, hold on. I, I kind of felt that um, it might seem a bit cliched for me to say this, but I would, I would say David Attenborough. Yeah. I would say David Attenborough. It would be stupid of me not to. Yeah. I have had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times. Okay. Um, I had a very brief conversation with him once, so it would be really nice to actually extend upon that. Yeah. What did you talk about? Um, Parrots, birds? We did, no, no, it was at, um, it was at a one-day workshop on amphibian conservation. Oh. It was um, part of my master's. So. Okay. So we had a chat there. He signed one of my books, but it was very fleeting. So an opportunity to really talk to him, especially about, I think, his younger years. I was fascinated by his Zoo Quest books. So it'd be really nice to chat to him about about that. Okay. Um, also, to make sure that it, it's fun and full of laughs, I really like Bill Bailey. Mm -hmm. So I think Bill Bailey would be a good addition to the to the table. He's also really passionate about nature and conservation he's a birder as well so mm -hmm. i think we'd have some good some good chats and i haven't seen um my best friend emma uh, for a long long time she and um, we did our phds together she lives um in tanzania at the moment and um she she would definitely be the life and soul of that dinner party yes. but i haven't seen her for a long long time so the opportunity to bring her to the table as well would be great great yeah. good mix yeah excellent <laughs> Rachel White, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Many thanks to Dr. White for her time. You can listen to all of these University of Brighton podcasts on Spotify, Apple and many other podcast apps. See you next Friday when we'll be catching up with another member of staff here at the university.